Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast. Subscribe it wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and as of recently on Spotify and as a standalone Alexa skill. Spotify introduced podcasts to their platform recently, and we're now on it. And if you have an Alexa in your life, you can now enable the Best of the Left skill to hear every new episode. And of course, if you know any Spotify or Alexa users who you think would like the show and just need an extra push to get them hooked, be sure to let them know about these new easy ways to listen to the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the culture behind the gun culture in the U.S. in an attempt to better understand it and to glean new ideas on how to fix it. Our clips today come from Ideas from the CBC, Intercepted, Full Frontal with Samantha B. The David Pakman Show, and Speak Out with Tim Wise, and then stick around to the very end for my final comments, which include a couple of bonus clips to bring the focus around a bit to uh, some of the effects and legacies of colonialism in many of its various forms. Andrew, in the book, you set out to explain what you call the culture of nuttiness that surrounds guns. Did you find the answer you were looking for? Oh, I found the culture of nuttiness without uh, without any difficulty. I think that, you know, you have to look at, at what is a gun culture. So, you know, the people who own guns for hunting, a lot of people who own guns for target shooting and in the military as well, you don't have that same gun culture. It's really the people who fetishize the gun. They turn it into a religious object. And you can find these people. They're out there. And, and sometimes they're closer than you think when you start talking to people. In American culture, the people who fetishize weapons have usually, including like Adam Lance and his mother, this is the person who did the Newtown shooting with the AR-15 semi-automatic uh, weapon, by the way, that's useless for hunting deer, which most people don't know because the caliber is just not big enough to take down a deer. Uh, they are white supremacists, uh, racists, survivalists, and those who fetishize weapons in the United States often have very, very close links to white racist groups. And that's been true going all the way back to slave patrols and, uh, you know, groups like the KKK. And and, um, and so that there is a, a twinning of that peculiar culture, uh, which Andrew has written about, and racism. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest uh, impacts of the book on me is to kind of, uh, when I was reading through it, it kind of illustrated for me and reminded me just how far America has to go in confronting the legacy of its past. You know, when I think about all of this stuff and you mentioned the race, when, when we're talking about this issue, we can't ignore the fact that it's, uh, it's one strong statement of whiteness <laughs> and uh, the failure of these people to confront their past and conquest in regard to natives, the fear of Mexicans fear of black people, the failure to confront the legacy of slavery, imperialism with foreigners and Arabs. It's its all fear, and you get at that in the book, Andrew. And to me, it just brought it into stark highlight about the refusal of American society as a whole to confront its own past and refusal of justice and the defense of white privilege. I, I find myself reading this book and turning the page and saying, yeah, it's nutty. Here's the insanity. It's individualism, capitalism, and white privilege yeah. that they're all defending. And we should make it clear that in the United States, uh, laws have largely criminalized the ownership of weapons by poor African Americans 
and left weapons largely in the hands of lower class and poor whites. Chris, I, I, I'm going to ask you directly, though. Do you, do you think that Andrew in the book somehow captured the nuttiness of gun culture? Has he, has he explained it to you? Well, I would have focused more on aspects of racism and the culture of vigilante violence. And I know he quotes Hofstetter who's written about this uh, because these armed vigilante groups, which have been a constant. I mean, America, going back to Blair Mountain and what Andrew spoke about earlier, uh, had the bloodiest labor wars in the industrialized world. Hundreds of American workers were killed. Thousands were wounded. Tens of thousands were blacklisted. And it was carried out largely by vigilante groups, Baldwin Feltz, uh, Pinkertons, and various assorted you know, company thugs. That was also true, by the way, in the Indian Wars. If you look at many of the worst massacres, like Sand Creek, it wasn't carried out by the U.S. Cavalry. And I'm not defending the U.S. Cavalry. They carried out their share of massacres. Uh, but uh, these were – like this was – I think his name was Carrington, built a militia out of Denver. Uh, they wanted the land and they just went out and killed with impunity. So vigilante violence – and its ideological foundation of racism, I think, lies behind much of the violence in the United States and the gun culture itself. There's a new book that just came out that lays out a provocative argument for getting rid of the Second Amendment in its entirety. And the book asserts that the NRA has become a white nationalist organization. That book is titled Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. And it was written by the radical historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Her book tells a very different tale about the so-called gun culture in the United States and about how the Second Amendment was, at its core a solidifying of the rights of white people to bear arms, to steal native land by force, to capture so-called runaway slaves, and to prevent rebellions from oppressed people. It wasn't about hunting. It wasn't about protecting against the tyranny of government. It wasn't about simply protecting your property from criminals and thieves. Sure, those arguments are made by Second Amendment enthusiasts, and they're certainly representative of a lot of people's motives for possessing guns. Hi, I'm Chuck Norris, a black belt patriot. If some thug breaks into my home, I could use my roundhouse kick, but I'd prefer he look down the barrel of my gun. And millions of other laws... It's all well and good to find white action heroes to extol the virtues of gun ownership and how American-y it is to own those guns. But what's the actual history behind the Second Amendment? It's a question we rarely hear discussed in our society. But it is our focus right now. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is the author of many books, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roots of Resistance, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico, and Blood on the Border, A Memoir of the Contra War. Her latest book, again, is called Loaded. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz joins me now. Welcome to Intercepted. Thank you, Jeremy. If the United States has a gun culture, what is that gun culture? It's a weapon of settler colonialism all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Argentina, where settler colonialism was used. But in the United States, by putting it in the Constitution as that sacred document, as a, an individual right, it veered considerably from those other settler 
colonies. From the very beginning, guns and ammunition were required in the colonies, in Virginia and then in Massachusetts Bay Colony and then Virginia first, that every man, every household had to have a firearm and a certain amount of gunpowder and bullets. And uh, if they couldn't afford that, the colonial government would subsidize it. So what were they so afraid of that they had to have all these guns because they were on land that they had stolen by burning people's villages down, by killing, raping, maiming, and driving Native people into the periphery where they fought back and tried to regain their land and also keep them from taking more. So U.S. settler colonialism was really required. The whole buildup of the United States, a white nationalist democracy, every man a king with land, and of course then institutionalized slavery took hold by the 1670s. Out of these militias, they carved slave patrols as well. So that dual usage, you know, the right to own human bodies and land and to steal them, kidnap people and kill people, really genocide is just written into the very cellular structure of the United States, the Constitution, every institution. And that plus the militarism that lasted from before, during, and after independence and continued until 1890, more than a hundred years of daily, moment-by-moment warfare against Native people, at the same time invading other countries, the Barbary Wars in 1806 and 1809, and then uh, Mexico, 1846-48. That just and and then jumped over the Pacific and into the Caribbean and then to the whole world. So the militarism is the key component of it, and only a third of the population even own a gun. And there's a good portion of those who are combat vets. Hmm. The exact text, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I'm not asking you about more recent interpretations by various courts, but at that time, in 1789, when they were referring to a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, what was the historical context and what did they refer to when they were talking about well-regulated militia? Well, they certainly weren't talking about state militias because those were provided for in the Constitution itself. That's the genealogy of the National Guard. But the Bill of Rights, which was came later, the amendments, these were individual rights, very specifically individual rights. So they could only have referred to the existing citizens' militias, but they came to be self-organized. They were very well organized for selfish interests, for their own purpose. The state, the government had no authority over them whatsoever. And uh, this was how the whole continent was taken, was these settlers themselves Organized that every every settler a soldier they're all armed they say out in their fields and everything and they're they're all well organized so they could in, in minutes you know call up a a militia and um, they knew what to do you know it was in their self interest so well what were these militia doing 
killing Indians, <laughs> taking their land. <laughs> That's what they were doing. And then the land was theirs. And um, the slave patrols were also self-organized. It was really every white man had an obligation to keep an eye out, even if they didn't own slaves, to keep an eye out and turn in any stray black person that didn't have a permit on him that he's doing some errand for the owner. And if he didn't have that, then he was considered a renegade, you know, and it had to be captured and returned to the owner. Right. You you write in the book, uh, and this is a quote, the astronomical number of firearms owned by U.S. civilians with the Second Amendment considered a sacred mandate is also intricately related to militaristic culture and white nationalism. The militias referred to in the Second Amendment were intended as a means for white people to eliminate indigenous communities in order to take their land and for slave patrols to control black people. Slave patrols, uh, several scholars have traced the genealogy of slave patrols into modern police forces. So we still see the controlling of especially young black men by police forces. It's not just history. It has led up to the exact kind of situation, both militaristic and institutionally violent society that we have now. When you listen and, and watch the current debate about guns in this country, what is your critique of the way that the Second Amendment is discussed by opponents of guns? Can you lay out your perspective on that? You know, their arguments are, you don't need a automatic weapon, you don't need an assault rifle to kill a deer. It is so stupid. It was never, ever, ever about hunting. It's never had anything to do with that. And of course, for these gun nuts, you know, they think that is hilarious because they know what guns are for. The guns are kill people. The other argument that liberals make is they create a bogeyman. It's all about money and it's uh, advertising and sales. And, you know, you could say it's capitalism. Well, of course, everything is related to the evils of capitalism, but it's not all about money. There is a populist base, and it's very large, and it's much larger. I consider the NRA the largest and most powerful hardcore white nationalist organization, maybe in the world right now, except maybe for the U.S. government at this point. But they argue that either the gun industry or the NRA are both together in cahoots are the problem. It's because they have so much money and they bribe congressmen. What they do is get these people unelected or elected or out of office through their base. They are a mass-based organization with chapters everywhere in the United States. And they're activists. That is what they live for. They are gun nuts, gun fetishes, and they, they're one-third of the population. 80% of those are white, but 61% are white males. That is the constituency. It's like liberals and even a lot of leftists do not want to face the fact that there's this much power. There's been very little legislation ever because as long as it was a nice, secure white republic up to World War II, 
uh, with Jim Crow fully in charge, legal segregation, redlining and everything throughout the North. It was secure. And then then the civil rights movement, which, of course, had always gone on, black resistance, native resistance, but it had a great success right after World War II, and that was the desegregation decision of the Supreme Court. That was the trigger. That was the earthquake, the tsunami that set off the new wave of white supremacy. It wasn't really even needed. It always was there, but it wasn't really needed in an organized way as long as they, as they controlled everything. I mean, they were, they ran the whole government. Southern senators ran the Senate. They had nothing to worry about. So you see this tightened up with the founding of the LAPD, the new LAPD. It was an all-white, paramilitary, white nationalist police force. It's never really lost that veneer or structure. It still has problems. You know, this is a rebellion. This is a counter-revolution that started, I mean, really at the time of the first victory and built up and built up until it was taken over, the NRA was taken over by a gunnery group founded two years earlier, Harlan Carter, a former vicious border patrol agent. Thanks to you, the members and supporters of NRA, no national gun law has passed this year. We will stand together, strong, dedicated, shoulder to shoulder for what is right. And they infiltrated and got the vote and took over the NRA. That's when it became a completely white supremacist organization and started emphasizing the Second Amendment. Any national gun law, no matter how innocent in appearance, presupposes a still further growth in a centralized, computerized gun control bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., a monstrous invasion of the rights to privacy of you law-abiding and decent people who have never committed a crime and concerning whom there's no evidence you ever will. You write, by the time of its 1977 convention, the Second Amendment Foundation and its lobbying arm, the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, uh, which was founded in Washington State in 1974, seized leadership of the NRA. And you state, the Constitution is the sacred text of the civic religion that is U.S. nationalism. And that nationalism is inexorably tied to white supremacy. Yes, we are weird in the world in the United States with this sanctification of a constitution. They built into the constitution almost an inability to change it. But again, the originalism arose with this counter-revolution against black freedom. But it really is an individual right. It was meant to be an individual right from the very beginning. So you know, it really needs to be abolished. That's what needs to be. But it's not the vehicle that produces the violence. It's the violence that leans on this phony, sacred object, the Second Amendment, to the point that even all these liberal Congress people, you hear them over and over preceding their efforts for gun control by well, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment, but 
But we have millions of people who are gun owners in this country. 99.9% of those people obey the law. I want to see real serious debate and action on guns. But it is not going to take place if we simply have extreme positions on both sides. But that's ridiculous, you know. What, what are they supporting? You know, do they know what they're supporting? And then other liberals like Nancy Pelosi, they argue that it's out of date. And if they think through what that means, it means, well, we don't have to kill Indians anymore, you know. We all support the right of the Second Amendment right to bear arms. She forgets we still have to kill black people, though, apparently, and Muslims and Mexicans. So it's really an ineffective argument because they, they just go round and round. Well, if you really believe in the Second Amendment, but I've heard it before, they say, oh, these old guns back then, you know, if we had individual right to a musket and plenty of gunpowder, then that would be fine. Oh, but, you know, they killed a hell of a lot of Indians with those muskets. They were good with those things. You know, they had whole wars. People were killed in Europe with muskets. It's not not nothing. Well, and you, you also write quite bluntly, white nationalists are the irregular forces, the volunteer militias of the actually existing political economic order. They are provided for in the Second Amendment. Yeah, they are. If people want that, then they should continue supporting the Second Amendment. But if they want to find out what the Second Amendment is really about, and that takes a historical contextualization because it wasn't even debated at the time. It was already in the um, colonists uh, when they broke away with the Declaration of Independence. They each formed sovereign states. And, of course, the Constitution, seven, eight years later, was to bring them together in a federation. But in their constitutions, they had already put in the mandate for the continuation of these citizens' militias and the right of carrying arms. And Thomas Jefferson wrote the one in the Virginia Constitution and imported it, you know, to the Bill of Rights. So there was no discussion. There was no argument. No one said, oh, should we do this? Is it an individual right? There was no argument. Everyone knew what it was about. What else could it have been for since they had actual state militias and the Army and the Navy in the Constitution? the Las Vegas shooting, over 900 more Americans have lost their lives to guns. We haven't heard about most of these because cable news is only on 24 hours a day, so we only take notice on the most shootiest days in the shootiest places. Mass shootings are scary and impossible to predict, except for this one big thing that's a really good predictor. Every Town for Gun Safety performed an exhaustive study of mass shootings from 2009 through 2016. There were 156 mass shootings. 54% of those incidents were related to domestic or family violence. Mass shooters come in all male shapes and all male sizes, but most of them rehearse for it the same way. 
James Hodgkinson was at the center of a big domestic disturbance. He punched a woman in the face, dragged his daughter to the ground by her hair. This is Omar Mateen's ex-wife, who told ABC News he regularly beat her. At least two of Robert Louis Deere's ex-wives accused him of physical abuse. And in 1992, he was arrested and accused of sexual violence and rape. Yep, you got it. The common thread is domestic violence. There were 10 times as many women killed by a current husband or boyfriend or ex-husband as by a male stranger. The majority of this violence is perpetrated with firearms. Women are five times as likely, more likely to die from domestic violence when there are guns in their household. An abusive husband and a gun is a deadly combination. It's like matches and gasoline, or men and gasoline, or men and everything else. So tell us more about this crazy theory that violent men don't have much regard for lady folks. The majority of mass shooters in America also behaved in abusive ways with respect to their spouses or intimate partners or other close family members. They do tend to have these notions of a woman's traditional place. They tend to be rankled by women who speak out, by women who argue with them. These are people who want to exercise control over women. This study brought to you by the Institute for Men Confirming Things That Women Have Known Since the Beginning of Fucking Time. And by viewers like you. It turns out there's legislation that would help prevent mass shootings and domestic violence, and it's only a little gun controlly. States that require background checks see 46% fewer women shot by their partners. But there's still a loophole in the system that allows guns to get into the hands of domestic abusers. It's called the boyfriend loophole. Domestic abusers are prohibited from buying or owning a firearm if they've ever been married to the victim, lived together, or had a child. But a dangerous ex-boyfriend or a dating partner? There's nothing stopping them. Yes, it's the boyfriend loophole, not to be confused with the Sweet Valley High book of the same name. The boyfriend loophole goes back 20 years when Congress made a half-hearted effort to keep guns out of domestic abusers' hands. But there was concern that innocent men's gun rights could be impeded because bitches be lying. So Congress defined domestic violence in a way that focuses on spouses, cohabitating couples, and couples with kids. But they excluded boyfriends who are just keeping it casual. Just what we needed, ladies. Another excuse for men not to commit. That joke was brought to you by The Kathy Collection, now available on Kindle. It's excellent. By weaseling out with their it's complicated relationship status, Congress left a quarter of all domestic violence victims vulnerable and led to the worst De Beers ad campaign ever. <laughs> the law also prohibited only the purchase of guns, allowing abusers to keep whatever weapons they already owned. It did nothing to stop them from skipping a background check by going through a private seller, and it didn't prevent them from buying guns if they had a temporary protective order filed against them. But other than that, the law worked out great. Right, right? Lori Duker heads Court Watch Montgomery. For the last year, she and 10 volunteers tracked more than 100 domestic violence cases in Montgomery County. Together, they found judges overwhelmingly failed to tell convicted abusers that they could no longer own a gun. The judge's failure rate? 99%. 99% failure rate? How can anything have a 99% failure rate? Even burlap condoms only have a 98% failure rate. 
So what gives, judges? No reasonable person wants abusers to have guns. There are even real Americans, you know, white conservative men, who want to close the boyfriend loophole. I'm the sheriff in Racine County, Wisconsin. I am a conservative Republican. Any cop will tell you that domestic violence calls are the most dangerous calls that law enforcement officers will respond to. The last thing that the victim needs and the last thing that my deputies need is a dangerous abuser armed with illegal weapons. Ooh, move over, Carl Winslow. Mama's got a new favorite sex fantasy cop. Now, believe it or not, this is one area where advocates for sensible gun control are winning. This year alone, eight states have passed or strengthened laws to varying degrees to keep guns away from domestic abusers. And in most of those states, the legislation was signed by a Republican governor. Since 2013, similar bills have been signed by Republicans, including Scott Walker, Nikki Haley, and that creepy old Alabama governor who resigned after he got caught boning his advisor. Thanks, Governor Droopy Balls. A grateful nation salutes you. These are a few small rays of light in a story so dark Jeff Sessions won't let it vote. But there's a lot of work left to be done. Existing laws aren't enforced enough. Victims are too often met with skepticism. And there are still 37 states that haven't closed the boyfriend loophole. Look, even if you don't give a shit about domestic violence, abused women are the canary in the coal mine for mass shootings. If you take guns from abusers, you might even be able to save more important non-female lives. And the law shouldn't care if the person holding a gun is married, because the gun definitely doesn't. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Okay, I've done segments before talking about how we might be able to solve the gun violence problem in the United States. And I've pointed out many times that gun violence is not going to be solved by one thing. And I've also pointed out, which by the way, some of the gun fetishists agree with me on this, that what has worked in other countries won't necessarily work in a vacuum in the United States. And the key word there is necessarily. And the explanation for why the United States needs unique solutions to the gun violence problem is that the United States has a unique problem in our culture with guns. And I've talked about this before, and it doesn't mean that I don't want an assault weapons ban. It doesn't mean that I don't want a ban on high capacity magazines. It doesn't mean that I think 100% background checks are a bad idea or that we need better connections between our mental health system and the gun purchasing system. I think that in the U.S., we need all of those things. 
But what we need to understand, and this is barely ever discussed, is that we have a unique problem in the United States with guns that's different than in other countries. And the major problem in the United States with guns is what I guess we can loosely call gun fetishism, right? This includes the idea of guns as solutions to our problems. This applies to both school shooters and also to the gun obstructionists, I guess I'd call them, people who just want to get in the way of any common sense gun safety regulations under the guise of, oh, we need to never, never uh, uh, encroach upon the Second Amendment and we need full liberty and full freedom. They use that to justify obstructing any gun safety regulations or laws. Uh, let's talk about background checks, right? Background checks alone are not going to solve that too many Americans consider guns a way to solve problems that can't be solved with guns. There are examples of other countries that have guns, but they have a healthier relationship to the guns, right? Switzerland is a popular one for the right. The American pro-gun right loves to talk about, hey, look, Switzerland, people have guns and there's no problems. Well, what's different in Switzerland is not only the laws about training background checks and how guns uh, have to be stored, but the relationship between the citizens of Switzerland and their guns is totally different than in the United States. One that I'm more personally familiar with is Israel. In Israel, you see guns everywhere because there are soldiers everywhere, young kids doing their couple of years of mandatory service in the military. But the guns aren't seen as cool. The guns are seen as a tool that you learn to use when you do your service, but they're not fetishized. And the gun hobbyism, it exists, but it's not fetishized the way it is in the United States. And you see this difference in our relationship to guns because after 9-11, airline security was completely changed. We put air marshals on planes to try to stop hijackers. And yet we've had dozens of school shootings and no changes, mostly just bad ideas and some good ideas that the gun fetishist, fetishist right just gets in the way of. So you can have a Second Amendment and still not think that we should champion people carrying guns everywhere and putting guns in more places and movie theaters and schools and sporting events and bars. Culturally, it has to be less acceptable to be carrying around a gun. And this is a cultural change that aside from all the other changes that I think we should make, that's a cultural change that would drastically reduce the demand for guns. It would reduce the demand for gun stores. It would still be legal to have them. It would be tougher to get guns. It'd be less appealing and interesting. Guns should be scarce and expensive. And honestly, it's kind of late to really make this change in our culture easily because we have this sort of trigger-happy gun culture in the U.S. that in a lot of the world, Pat, when people hear about how some Americans fetishize guns, it's alarming. They see this and they say, what, what is wrong with these Americans that they're obsessed with their guns? So I think that, yes, the law can influence the culture to some degree, but the culture is a unique problem that we have here in the United States. And it's because America has always had a gun culture, whether yeah. it be having the right to bear arms or exploring the new frontier or having all this land in the middle of the country. Sure. A lot of shooting and hunting goes on, and it will always go on. 
in part because we do have a constitutional right to bear arms. doesn't mean you can't have restrictions on those, though. And we're going to talk about that later, because that's a key point. But yes, this is, this is not saying, let's get rid of the Second Amain- Amendment. It's saying we need to drastically change our relationship to guns. And think about seatbelts, right? Seatbelt laws were resisted heavily early on. Seatbelts were seen as uncool. Let the driver decide. Freedom, liberty. But then it became a ticketable offense not to wear a seatbelt. And then car manufacturers added annoying dings when you don't wear your seatbelt. And people mostly wear seatbelt laws. Marijuana. Law does influence public perception. So the law around guns can help to change the culture. But there needs to be some bigger introspection here as well. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update and action reminder, help students march for their lives on March 24th. In a time where a month of news cycles feels like a year, the Parkland student activists have continued to hold court. On March 14th, the one-month anniversary of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, students across the country, even some elementary school students, took part in a national school walkout. Some students took part despite threats of suspension and detention by school administrators. In Pennsylvania, over 200 students were given Saturday detention for participating in a walkout and then performed a sit-in at the detention while wearing Parkland victims' names. Ahead of the walkout, the admissions departments of many colleges and universities publicly announced that retribution students face in response to peaceful, lawful activism would not negatively affect their applications. This, of course, only gives solace to college-bound students, though it was a positive sign of general support. But maybe most encouraging of all was a meeting that took place earlier this month with Parkland students and students from inner-city Chicago. Parkland student activist Emma Gonzalez tweeted the following about the meeting, quote, Yesterday, the members of A March for Our Lives got to meet up with some of the most wonderful and most strong-spoken students of Chicago. Florida's safest city and one of the cities in America most affected by gun violence came together to share stories, ideologies, and pizza. Those who face gun violence on a level that we have only just glimpsed from our gated communities have never had their voices heard in their entire lives the way that we have in these few weeks alone. Since we all share in feeling this pain and know all too well how it feels to have to grow up at the snap of a finger, we were able to cover a lot of ground in communicating our experience. People of color in inner cities and everywhere have been dealing with this for a despicably long time, and the media cycles just don't cover the violence the way they did here. The platform us Parkland students have established is to be shared with every person, black or white, gay or straight, religious or not, who has experienced gun violence, and hand in hand, side by side, we will make this change together." 
As far as legislative progress, Florida has increased the age limit for purchasing a gun from 18 to 21, implemented a three-day waiting period for all firearms purchases, and banned bump stocks. But at the same time, the legislator funded arming some public school employees and refused to ban semi-automatic weapons. The Parkland students have expressed their frustration, saying they feel like they only got one point in a game. But again, a reminder that this has all happened in only one month. The March for Our Lives is this Saturday, March 24th, and there are now over 800 events taking place worldwide. Though the largest march will be in D.C., if you can't make it there, you can easily find a sibling march near you by going to marchforourlives.com and entering your country or zip code. Besides marching, perhaps one of the best things you can do to support this movement is by donating to help support the logistics of this demonstration so that more people can make their voices heard. If you personally know students who want to take action, consider paying for their gas money, driving them there yourself, offering your home as a safe place to stay if they have to travel to march, or taking them to pre-register or register to vote. Remember that these are kids and they still need support from adults in their communities. We failed them on gun reform before they came into this world. Let's be damn sure we don't fail in helping them make real change now. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if helping the youth continue to seize the moment on gun reform is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about helping students march for their lives on March 24th via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. about the Second Amendment. We know that because the Second Amendment never gave you the right to have any kind of gun you wanted. Because if it did, then you'd have a right to rocket launchers. You'd have a right to surface to air missiles. You'd have a right to machine guns. You'd have a right to an M1 Abrams tank, a neutron bomb, chemical weapons, atomic weapons. You don't, right? So obviously we can draw the line. Even the people who support the right to bear arms and are the most vociferous about that, very few of them would argue that you have a right to a machine gun. Very few of them would argue that you have the right to a surface-to-air missile. That is an arm. That is a weapon, right? But we draw a line. And the point is, if we can draw a line at those weapons, it's relatively arbitrary. Why can't we draw it a little bit closer to home? Why can't we draw it around semi-automatic, high-capacity magazine, multi-shot weapons? Why can't we draw it around certain types of handguns? Well, the answer is we can and still keep in line with the Second Amendment. This is just a smokescreen argument, and everybody knows it. I mean, ultimately, this isn't about self-defense, and it's not about the Second Amendment. Because if it were just that... There would be absolutely no need for AR-15s. There would be absolutely no need for high-capacity magazine weaponry. There would be absolutely no need for guns, even just handguns, that take nine shots in a clip or 12 shots in a clip. There would be absolutely no reason for any of that. You don't need any of that to defend yourself. You could defend yourself more than adequately with a, you know, sort of old-school double-barreled shotgun or an old-school single-shot rifle, frankly. Um, the people defended themselves for years with that. And so, so honestly, if we want to get down to what we need to do, I mean, in addition to to the obvious, uh, I, th I think we ought to ban the, the production and manufacture, sale and possession of AR-15s or any kind of high-capacity magazine weaponry. There's just no need for it. And, and I know people are going to say, well, 
There's thousands and and maybe millions of these in circulation. You're never going to be able to get rid of all of them. I understand. But if we had a program to have people turn those in, for instance, and I know, you know, gun buyback programs have limited success because not a lot of people participate in them. You turn in the gun, you get a couple hundred bucks. And and a lot of people aren't going to do that, particularly if they're really wedded to the idea of having a gun for self-defense or whatnot. But here's here's what I would propose. And I've talked about this before. How about not just a not a gun buyback program? I mean, we could do that. But I think maybe uh alternative to that would be to say, look, you you turn in these guns, these high-capacity magazine weapons, whether they are high-capacity handguns, whether they are assault rifles, AR-15s, whatever, and for every one of those you give us, we will gladly give you a simple old-school rifle. In fact, we could encourage the production of old-school rifles, high, you know, functional, perfectly functional rifles, the kind of the kind of rifles that, you know, would have been ubiquitous 50 years ago, 100 years ago. I mean, they'd be better quality, obviously, than 100. I'm not talking about antique rifles, but you know what I mean, that kind of weapon, just an old-school long gun. And that way, you could take all the gun manufacturers who you'd be, in a sense, putting out of business because they can't make these other weapons anymore, and you'd say, look, we don't want to, we're not trying to bankrupt you. We're not trying to put you out of business. We don't want to lay off all your employees. We just want you to to get busy making the kind of weapons that people can actually use to defend themselves. Or if they're going to go hunting, they can hunt with those. They can defend themselves with those. So for every one of these weapons that we're now going to ban, you can bring it in. We will, the government will guarantee you and, and this, these companies that make the weapons will have an automatic market basically, uh, that they can produce for of long guns and we will trade. It's a swap program or you can turn it in and get cash, whatever. Either way, the government will either give you cash for it or we will uh, provide you with one of these long guns that this company is going to make. It wouldn't end the problem, for God's sake, but but it would certainly make a dent. We know in other countries, those kinds of programs have dramatically reduced. In Australia, dramatically reduced gun violence, particularly mass murder-type violence. None of those since the gun confiscation slash buyback program many years ago. This would be a way to satisfy the Second Amendment purist, right? Because what we'd be saying is, look, you, you have a right to bear arms, fine. You're going to get a rifle. Even even the rifle that we'll give you is more advanced than what the framers were actually thinking of because it actually has bullets, not musket balls. So in a sense, we're giving you something even better than they were thinking of. You can defend yourself with a rifle. And in fact, as we begin to wind down the circulation of these other weapons, I know we're not going to get rid of all of them, but we're certainly going to wind that down. You would then not need anything greater than that for your self-defense. And we could also ban the ammunition. Like, oh, you have a right to bear arms, you have a right to that weaponry, okay, but we're not going to make any bullets for it anymore, so if you want to have an AR-15 that you can just look at and play with and pretend, that's fine, but the the bullets that go with that are going to be banned, you're not going to be able to manufacture those. Uh, We could impose strict liability laws that say, hey, you want to you want to keep your gun? That's fine. But here's the deal. If your gun is used, first of all, you have to register it immediately. If you don't register it, you're going to face serious criminal penalty. But if your gun ends up being used in the commission of a crime, or if your gun ends up being used in an accidental shooting, then you are going to face stiff criminal penalty. So we're going to have strict liability imposed upon the owner of the gun to ensure that it is not used for nefarious purposes. At the very least, what that would do is mean what? It would mean that people would have to be very, very cautious with their guns and have to keep their guns locked up, which reduces the likelihood of accidental shootings. It reduces the likelihood of suicide use of the gun. It also reduces the likelihood that someone who breaks into a house could find your gun and steal your gun. That's what happens a lot. A lot of law-abiding gun owners who don't secure their weapons weaponry, their guns end up getting stolen every year. One of the ways that a lot of legal guns end up on the street is because they get stolen by criminals who break into places. People leave them in their cars like idiots, or they leave them in a in a dresser drawer, and somebody breaks in, finds the gun, takes it. If that happens under this new law that I'm proposing, then the owner would be in serious shit. 
right? So now that becomes a deterrent. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I don't want to take any chance, man. If my gun is used in the commission of crime, I'm going to go to jail. I'd rather get rid of my gun. There are all kinds of ways like that. The gun buyback, the gun swap program, the strict liability, a lot of things like that that would incentivize getting rid of your gun. And of course, I think we ought to ban gun shows. There's absolutely no reason for these almost entirely unregulated gun shows where the notion of a well-regulated militia goes straight into the toilet in a place like that. So, you know, there are a lot of things like that that we can do. Better background checks, mental health screening, 72-hour wait periods. I mean, whatever. There's lots of stuff. And I think we ought to do all of it. But let me close with this because ultimately... We do have a problem that is, I guess you would say, concordant with the gun issue. So yes, it's the guns. The data says it's the guns. The availability of the guns is the biggest problem. But let's understand there's a reason why America has so many guns. That's not just some abstract, disconnected fact. And we have to ask ourselves, why is the United States so wedded to the gun? Because even if we ban the sale and manufacture and do all the stuff that I just mentioned and a lot of other things that you could imagine, we still got to deal with this cultural attachment that we have, unlike any other nation on earth, to guns for a particular purpose. Yeah, there are lots of guns in Canada, right? There are lots of guns in Switzerland, but they have a very different cultural understanding of weaponry. First of all, they don't have rights to weapons in those places. It's a far healthier way of dealing with it. But until we get rid of the Second Amendment uh, or have a different jurisprudence understanding of the Second Amendment, we're not going to be able to, to go quite that direction. But in addition to that, those countries, Canada, Switzerland, Australia, all the nations of Europe, really all the other nations on earth that we like to compare ourselves to, have never defined their country in as martial and warlike and weapon-like a way as the United States. We are attached to weapons because we are a settler colonial nation that is rooted in conquest and rooted in very recent conquest. I realize that most nations on earth and most nation state boundaries, right, are the result of war, are the result of conquest. But for a lot of countries, that shit goes back a really long way. It's not a fresh national memory. Um, and in the United States, because we're a young country, relatively speaking, we still have this mythos that we have ingested and internalized and is still very much a part of our active understanding of America that is rooted in what? Westward expansion, the conquest of the land, colonialism, settler frontier mentality stuff, taking the land and 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 moving west and all of this stuff that we glorify, which involved the gun because we couldn't have settled the land and colonized the continent really without that heavy weaponry. And so in a sense, what we're dealing with is a culture that has defined the nation with reference to weaponry and with reference to the use of weaponry to control and to dominate, whether it was the land, whether it was the indigenous people who had to be run off the land, whether it was African people who had to be enslaved and held at gunpoint in order to work the land, particularly in the South, to bring forth an economy that would allow the country to function in the first place. You know, whatever it was, the the, the weaponry that was used to steal half of Mexico in a war of aggression that this country frankly started. I mean, all of our history is rooted in that. And the way that we've taught history as a country. If you think about it, I, I doubt very seriously this has changed. And I've looked at textbooks over the years since I got out of school 
And the the stuff that we're teaching our young people is still very much a litany of narratives about war heroes and generals and battles. You know, like when we study the Civil War, we're studying the history of battles. When we study the Revolutionary War, we're studying the history of battles. It's Lexington and Concord. It's, you know, we're talking about generals and we're talking about troop movements. That's who we are as a country, much more so than any other. So our, our very notion of not just nationhood, but masculinity is tied up with that. Uh, there was an ad back in 2010, and it was placed by Bushmaster Firearms, one of the big firearms manufacturers. And it was an ad for an assault rifle. And the text on the ad said, consider your man card reissued. And it had a picture of this assault rifle, which it, you look at this weapon. There is no reason on earth for anyone to have this weapon for self-defense, for hunting, for any reason at all, other than either to go murder people or to feel like a bigger man for having it and for possessing it. What kind of sick notion of manhood is that? Consider your man card reissue. This is appealing to guys who don't feel masculine enough and somehow, you know, this gun becomes this sort of substitute phallus. No other country on earth does this shit, right? You think about how they define manhood in European nations, right? Uh, you know, you think of, I mean, you ask your typical American man whether they think Frenchmen are manly, right? And they're going to probably say no because we have this image of the Frenchman is this guy that sits around in a cafe all day wearing a beret, reading poetry and drinking coffee. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but in this country, we apparently think there is because that's not what real men do. Real men drive trucks and they go shoot shit and they eat a lot of meat and, you know, they get dirty and whatever. I mean, like we just have this imagery of manhood and the gun is very much a part of that. They don't have that imagery of manhood in Asia. So martial arts, a defensive thing. It isn't something you just break out on people to beat their ass. But here... We have this notion of masculinity, which is connected to the gun. And you've got gun manufacturers like Bushmaster in that advertisement playing upon that, knowing that there's this deep level of insecurity that haunts American masculinity, particularly American white masculinity, frankly, because they're the ones that are the most vociferous in defending weaponry and apparently seem to need it and always have because white men have been afraid, afraid of the frontier and the people they'd find there, afraid of the indigenous people who knew the land better than they did, afraid of the African people they were enslaving because they understood that if those folks got free, they were going to kick their ass because they'd been kidnapped for God's sake. So white men have been living in fear of the other since the very beginning because we knew what we were doing to other people and so we had to impose all these systems of oppression just to keep them from getting back at us and the gun was a really great way to do that white american manhood has been inherently tied to guns since the beginning we have to break that culture and we can do that with some of these gun control measures but we also have to do that in the way that we raise our kids we have to teach history differently we have to talk about manhood in a different way we have to raise our boys differently we have to challenge the mentality that guns are cool and they make you tough. We ought to have a public health campaign to stigmatize guns. We ought to, we ought to try to make guns as uncool as cigarettes. Remember, you know, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. I remember growing up and cigarettes were still considered cool in the eighties and in the seventies. And they were definitely considered cool in the sixties and the fifties, man. You know, you turn on a television show from those days or you, uh, you know, Twilight Zone was my favorite show. Rod Serling always was smoking a cigarette. James Baldwin, my favorite writer ever. Anytime you saw him interviewed, he was smoking a cigarette. Um, in the forties and the fifties, all the Hollywood stars, you'd see pictures of them out at the club or whatever. They're always smoking cigarettes. The Rat Pack in Vegas, they're always smoking cigarettes. Cigarettes were a status symbol. Now they are like, you see somebody smoking a cigarette and it's like, oh. 
You know, there's like a certain grossness factor to it for a lot of people. And I know a lot of that's bound up with classism. And I don't want to like applaud that part of it because we know that disproportionately the folks who were still smoking tend to be working class and lower income. And a lot of upper middle class and affluent folks, at least in this country, in the United States have, have, have stopped smoking. So I don't want to make it like, oh, look at those dirty low class people who still smoke. But generally speaking, when you see someone smoking, there's sort of a, re- a revulsion uh, uh, impulse. Now, a lot of young people don't think it's cool anymore. And, um, we have to have the same thing happen with guns. We need to make it so that the very idea of owning a gun, especially one of these high capacity magazine guns or multiple guns, is just seen as like, what's wrong with you? It's just, it's like there's something literally wrong. There should be a stigma associated with that. That's only going to happen if we raise our kids differently. It's only going to happen if we teach people differently. It's only going to happen if we have a public health campaign to stigmatize guns the same way we did with cigarettes. We got to control the weapons. We also got to get a hold of our culture, which is a sick culture, not because of Hollywood, not because of rap music, all this stuff that the right wants to blame because, you know, during the period, frankly, that that, that hip-hop became the dominant cultural form on the planet, crime has actually gone down. Violent crime is down by about half since the inception of what we call gangster rap. Since the early 1990s. Crime was was almost twice as high in 1991, 92, 93 as it is today. So obviously, you know, gun violence, crime in general, uh, homicides can't be can't be linked to Hollywood, can't be linked to hip hop, can't be linked to video games. Um, what it's linked to is the guns and the way in which this country uniquely on the planet relates to weaponry. We got to get a hold of that, people, because if we don't, our children are going to continue to die. This is about the guns. This is about toxic masculinity. This is about the white blindness that continues to blind communities so often to the fact that evil can visit their neighborhoods as well. We have such stereotypes of who the dangerous people are that we end up overlooking danger or soft peddling danger or not really intervening on danger when it comes in a white face or it comes in an affluent community in a way that we would no doubt intervene if that face were black, if that face were Muslim. We just got all this stuff we got to deal with and we better deal with all of it. Anyone who says, oh, this isn't part of the solution doesn't know what they're talking about. All of these things are part of the solution. We've just heard clips today starting with ideas on the CBC discussing the origins of gun culture and violence, intercepted, examined the connections between white supremacy and the religion of guns. Samantha B. on Full Frontal explained the boyfriend loophole and made the connection between domestic violence and gun violence. The David Pakman Show talked about the multifaceted problem of gun fetishism. Our activism today is in continued support of the Parkland Students' activism. And finally, we just heard Tim Wise on his show Speak Out, explaining the history and context of our violent culture. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. This is Annie from Alabama, and I'm calling in on your opiate episode. I am a person who is uh, chronically ill. I have major pain issues and um if our disability system was a little bit more understanding i would probably be disabled but you know you know how that goes that's a different episode for a different day i'm actually calling to talk about a uh concept 
that no one talked about in your episode except a little bit in the very beginning, and it's how the actually ill people are getting shafted by this opiate epidemic going on and the concept of pain acceptance. In your brain, pain is something, it's an alarm bell saying that something is wrong in your body and you can't just ignore it. It is disabling on purpose because, you know, if you've been stabbed, your body has a defense mechanism to make you not make that injury worse. And that's pain. You know, if you stick your hand in a fire, you can't ignore it. You will yank your hand out. That's the point of pain. But when your body is malfunctioning in a way that the pain will not stop, your quality of life diminishes greatly. And there's nothing you can do about it except take a painkiller. I have been on opiate pain medications. I've been on muscle relaxers. I've been on kind of all sorts and different cocktails and they actually work really well and my quality of life was so improved and as of right now I am on jack nothing because my doctor what my doctors are uncomfortable giving me that amount of medication and she told me she was going to scale me back by cutting everything I was on in half and then in two months cutting me down to nothing That's usually not how doctors scale you back. They usually do it in much more incremental steps. But that's what she felt was necessary because I was so young and I was on, you know, some pretty heavy-duty painkillers. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do for being in pain? And she said, you need to go talk to a therapist, which I already see, but she doesn't know that. She says, you need to go talk to a therapist about some pain acceptance that I need to come to the terms with the fact that the rest of my life I am going to be in a certain level of pain and become okay with that and, you know, become at peace with that. That's great. Uh, It doesn't work. Because my brain and my body do not care if I accept my pain. It's I'm still in pain and I'm still having the, the reactions to the pain. And Increased pain leads to increased stress hormones in your body, which cause inflammation, which causes more problems. Being in pain makes you sick, but they don't care about that. They just don't want to be seen as pill pushers and they don't want me to get addicted and and all that stuff. And it's just, it's a horrible catch 22 that I'm being put in. And I really hate to say it, but I've had to turn to some other things to make my pain stop. Legal things like alcohol used to be, I could take a pain pill at night And I would be pain-free enough to go to sleep, enough to function the next day. Well, now I've been staying up all night in, you know, pretty much agony. So I've been using hard alcohol to make me sleepy enough to go to sleep. Which is actually really, really bad because it interacts with my other pain, uh, my, my other medications for different things. And that's a bad idea, but that's all I've got. And they're actually pushing me to become in danger by not allowing me access to safer, more controlled medications like opiates or opioids. And it's just a horrible catch-22 that I'm being put in because we have this crisis around other drugs like fentanyl and heroin. And I really don't see a way out of it in the near future. Uh, Thanks for everything you do, Jay. Bye. Hey Jay, this is Jack from Lanza. I just wanted to make a, uh, a point about your uh, climate to compare to Charles. Do you feel it felt like 
For listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I know that the message we just heard from Zach in Atlanta was not the easiest message to hear. It wasn't, wasn't uh, super clear. So to briefly reiterate, uh, he, he was commenting in response to my question, not trying to equate fearful Southern conservatives who live near the U.S.-Mexican border and insist on carrying guns around with them out of fear of what might happen, almost certainly due to uh, immigrants, and Israeli Jews who feel fearful living in Israel of the conflict there and Palestinians, etc. I I certainly made clear at the time that I was not trying to, you know, conflate or equate the two. I just wanted to compare and contrast. And so, so Zach was saying that posing the question that way sort of sets up a false equivalency, maybe whether I mean to or not. So, you know, I, I tried to avoid it, but you know, I'll, I'll, I take him at, uh, I take his point. Um, but he went on to say that part of the reason why they are not a good comparison is because Israel and the fear in Israel is based on uh, or potentially based on fear of retribution by people who have come from Europe, taken over land, committed acts of genocide and, and ethnic cleansing, and now hold that land by force and fear that there may be uh, retribution for that. And I, I don't have much to say in response to that other than to wonder aloud if after today's episode, Zach will have different thoughts on the, the comparison 
that he described of how Israel, the, the very overly simplified version of Israel and, and the United States. So I, I guess I'll just leave that there. And, and secondly, I want to continue with a couple of bonus clips for you to further complicate this issue, to, to sort of tack on not only to Zach's uh, comments and questions in his message, but also to today's topic, because it all flows so nicely together. I wanted to bring in uh, a, a little bit more detail about colonialism. First, I want to replay a short version of a clip that was already on the show a few weeks ago, but I just want to pull this little clip out of it to really highlight the point, and, and there'll be more after that. So uh, let's, let's listen to this about some of the mechanics of colonialism and immigration. I was recently looking back at your excellent book, uh, Harvest of Empire, that also has been revised, and it made me start to think how so many people in this country, when they talk about immigrants or when they talk about undocumented immigrants or people who are here with protective status or people who were brought here uh, by their parents and they didn't have documentation, we never talk about why people have come here from uh, any number of these countries. Give an overview of the harvest of empire and why people started migrating from south to north at different points in history. Well, I think the basic thesis of, of my book, Harvest of Empires, you really cannot understand the massive growth of the Latino population in the United States uh, in the second half of the 20th century and the early 21st century, unless you understand the role of the United States in Latin America in the late 19th and early 20th century. That, in fact, the 50-some million Latinos now living in the United States are a direct result of the United States' creation of an imperial empire in Latin America. And in fact, the United States is not alone. The reason there are so many Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans in France is because those were the colonies of the French Empire. The reason there are so many Indians, Pakistanis, and Jamaicans in England is because those were the colonies of the British Empire. Uh, the reason there are so many Turks in Germany it's because Germany got laid into the imperial power game and after World War I basically absorbed the Ottoman Empire and began going into Turkey and other places in the Middle East. But what basically what happens is that World War II was a seminal moment in the colonial world because all of the powers in World War II all impressed their colonial soldiers into the war. The French drafted the Algerians and the Tunisians into the French army. Uh, the Americans drafted Puerto Ricans and Mexicans. My father and his two brothers all served in a Puerto Rican regiment uh, in World War II that was attached to Patton's 7th Army. They were all recruited right out of Puerto Rico, not even speaking a word of English, to fight in World War II. Even African-Americans who came up from the South, a lot of them were impressed into World War II. So the result was... After the war was over, the soldiers who returned all became the leaders of their independence movements, of their civil rights movements. If you look at all of the people in the civil rights movement in the United States, many of them were World War II veterans. Uh, in the same thing in the Mexican-American community, in the Puerto Rican community. They came back having been trained and fought in World War II and said, hey, we just defeated fascism, but we don't have rights in our own country. 
after World War II, you get the huge surge of African independence and Pakistan and India. They're all, all the colonial powers are forced to give up their colonies. But then because these countries had already established roots of trade and commerce and information with the metropolis, the, suddenly people started leaving their countries and going to the metropolis. Algerians started going to France and Tunisians and Indians and Pakistanis started going to England. And people who came to the United States were largely from countries that were already directly intervened, like Puerto Rico or Cuba, Dominican Republic and Mexico. And then, of course, Nicaragua, Salvador and Honduras. So basically, you can directly trace the mass migrations of every imperial power in the world to their former colonies. So that's why I say that the Latino presence in the United States is the harvest of the American empire. For the first 150 years, the colonial powers tried to get the resources, the gold or the, or the copper or whatever resource they could get out of the colonies. But then what they never expected was that the people themselves would come, that the workers would start using those same routes of trade to migrate to the metropolis. Had the West not try to dominate the entire world <laughs> and colonize the entire world. It would not be facing the kinds of migration situations that they're facing now. Now, that was Juan Gonzalez uh, being interviewed on Intercepted. And hopefully the message is clear that there is a pattern that comes across, but that not every instance has to be identical, that former colonies often produce people who move back to the colonizers, but that doesn't mean that the exact same circumstance happens the same way every time. Arguably, America did not officially colonize parts of South America in the same way that Europeans colonized uh, various parts of the world. We, we did a different kind of colonization, an economic colonization, but it's an echo of the same pattern. And to bring in just one other example that I heard recently to to show that the many that, that this can happen in many varied ways, but that the results are incredibly similar each time. I heard this clip on what is usually not a political show at all. Ninety nine percent invisible uh, is just a design show, and they were talking about a housing development in the Netherlands and through their storytelling, could not help but stumble into the echoes of colonialism and immigration. So here's just a short clip on that, that they're talking about a housing project, but it flows right into a conversation about Dutch colonialism. And that tropical climate is part of what attracted the Dutch to Suriname back in the 1600s. The Netherlands colonized this part of South America, as well as a handful of islands in the Caribbean. And for a couple hundred years in these places, the Dutch used slave labor from Africa to grow tropical crops like sugarcane. Slavery was abolished in the Dutch colonies in the 1860s, and many years later in the 1950s, these Caribbean colonies, including Suriname, were incorporated into the Kingdom of the Netherlands. All the people were given Dutch citizenship and allowed to live in whatever part of the kingdom they wanted. And so Gilly Coster and his family chose to move across the Atlantic. I left Suriname when I was six years old. This was 1962. 
So Gilly was already living in Amsterdam when, in the 1970s, suddenly a lot more people from Suriname started moving to the Netherlands. There were 5,000 people coming per month sometimes. Maybe I exaggerate a little bit now, but a lot. 3,000 at least every month. A movement had started within Suriname for independence from their former colonial rulers. And people got scared that the upheaval would be bloody and that they'd lose their ability to live in the Netherlands. They thought, well, we have to go now. If we, if you wait too long, we, we have to stay in Suriname. That's Dan Decker, who wrote a book about the Belmermere. You met him in the last episode. So it was, it was quite an exodus. Suriname eventually did become independent in 1975, and around this time, it's estimated that more than a quarter of the country, or about 100,000 people, moved to the Netherlands. For the government, it was really a shock, because they had uh, housing problems in the Netherlands, and they, uh, they didn't know where to place all those people. Of course, there was one place with housing available in the 1970s, a brand new development with thousands of empty apartments, the Belmermere. And of course, as you might expect, that led to racist backlashes against these people who were arguably not immigrants at all, but fellow citizens simply changing location from one part of the kingdom to another, but it led to racist housing policies and discrimination and everything you would expect in a situation like that. So uh, beautifully complicated and nuanced as always, but but the broader picture comes through quite clearly. So I think that's a good way to top off today's show. If you have any comments you want to add on this topic or any other The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, as that's absolutely how the program survives, and members are are rewarded with uh, bonus content and warm, fuzzy feelings. Uh, Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.